0: Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Good morning. I'm broadcasting today from the famous Boston University in the wonderful city of Boston. My guest, award-winning correspondent Diane Diamond, is is here today. She always has a story in the wind, and she loves to work with private investigators who often have just the inside scoop on both the front lines and as well as behind the scenes. A breaking crime story often finds Diane's thoughtful commentary on, you will see, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, or Court TV. And she's been at the center of countless major news stories during her career, she might be best known for first exposing the child molestation ca- charges against Michael Jackson. She was the first to report on the rape at the Kennedy compound in Palm Springs, or Palm Springs, Palm Beach, Florida, and to identify William Kennedy Smith as the accused. She's known for her hard-hitting interviews with prison inmates, such as James Earl Ray, the assassination assassin of Martin Luther King. And she's the only reporter to have ever interviewed Richard Allen Davis, the man who killed Polly Class. Besides being a special correspondent for Newsweek, The Daily Beast, and having a nationally syndicated weekly newspaper column, she's an author of two books, which I'll let her tell you about. And, uh, what's it, good morning, Diane. Good morning, Francie. Thanks for, for having me on. That, that was a long introduction. Yeah, well <laughs> thanks for being here, and I know that we both had some technological difficulties this morning, so it's really a pleasure to have you. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So, Diane, what's it like to cover the headline-making crime stories of the day? Well, it's exhilarating. It's fascinating. Um, Human behavior has always fascinated me. Why do people do the things they do? Why do they think they can get away with the things that they try? And um, it's also exhausting. (laughs) Sometimes it's just downright exhausting. So how do stories come to you? I mean, it seems like you must just be on alert 24-7. You know, it's funny. I am. Um, I have a website that tips come into. Um, my personal email is there. I'm very open to everybody who wants to try to contact me, except the Michael Jackson fans. I wish that they would stop <laughs> contacting me sometimes. But um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, Newsweek and the Daily Beast will call me up and say, hey, we hear so-and-so. Go check it out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get stories in a variety of ways, and for my syndicated column that I write, um, it's whatever just tweaks my fancy. I try to write columns that are outside the box to make people think about things about the justice system that they wouldn't really otherwise think of. For example, one of my more recent ones was about... um, the, the hot summer that we've all just endured, oh, my gosh, it's been just awful everywhere I've gone. But can you imagine if you're a prisoner locked up in an 8 by 10 cell and no air conditioning? Right. And that's the situation in a lot of prisons in America. And in, in some instances, it turns deadly. So I wrote a column about that, and I have to tell you, I, I get a lot of comments, and I post them all at my website, Okay, well, maybe not all of them, but um, <laughs> some of them probably aren't very tra- attractive. Yeah, some of them are a little, a little uh, harsh, so I don't yeah. post all of them. But I was really surprised at the number of people who said, "You know what? Screw the prisoners. They're there mm-hmm. because they were convicted of a crime, mm-hmm. and if they're too hot, too damn bad." Yep, uh, I was a little surprised at that. Yeah, I think that particularly came up over the uh... the jail in in Arizona. And in Texas, there have been several deaths in Texas Mm -hmm. where, in one instance, the inner um, temperature of this one particular man who died, his cell block, was 130 degrees. Mm. When they took him to the hospital, the emergency room, his internal temperature was 109. So it's just, you know, look, there are people, there are bad people. We lock them up, we convict them and lock them up. But we don't also then have to treat them worse than we would treat an animal. Mm -hmm. That's my thought. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, And uh, I I do know the people you're talking about that say, you know, just let them, let Let whatever happened to them. Let them rot, yeah. And that's really not what America is all about. And, you know, the reality is, People that are in prison, uh, often there's people in prison that just got themselves into a bad situation. Right. And, you know, do think, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this one topic, but think of the person who is in prison for, say, drunk driving, a repeated drunk driving, and they're in Mm. prison for three years. Mm -hmm. They didn't get a death sentence, but they die in prison because their cell block is 130 degrees. That's not fair. Yeah. That's just not fair. Yeah. So, well, what, a, what other kinds of things have you blogged about? Uh, well, um, gosh, <laughs> if you go to dianediamond.net or dianediamond.com, by the way, there's no A in my last name, um, you can, every Monday morning, I put my column that's run the weekend before up there. Uh, the one I just blogged about, I couldn't help it, Francine, I used to cover politics. Mm. Now I cover crime. I think there's an overlap there, you know, somewhere <laughs> maybe. But um, one of my more recent columns was about crimes against journalism committed by reporters, and I couldn't help it. I had to discuss. I had to write about the political discussion in America and how it's it's so wrapped up in the mundane when there's so many important things to think about. Mm -hmm. There's crime, there is the economy, there is a lack of jobs, there are home foreclosures, there are crucial, crucial issues at stake here in this election, Who, no matter who you're going to vote for. And the media is worried about some freshman Republican who took a dip in the Sea of Galilee a year ago, Mm -hmm. or whether or not Romney had a dog on the, well, he did have a dog on top of his car 30 years ago. Right. You know, come on. There's so much airtime devoted to these silly things. Like this morning I wake up and everybody's talking about, well, that was a great uh, speech that Bill Clinton gave, but it was 48 minutes long. Mm -hmm. 48. And it's all about the length of the speech instead of the content Mm -hmm. of the speech. And it just, it's a crime, I think, that we don't, the media has sort of abrogated its responsibility to be, insightful and informative, and instead we concentrate, I don't think it's a reporter's fault, by the way, I think it's the editors and yeah. the news executives, um, we we just concentrate on these controversial, stupid little things, and it, it makes me mad, so I wrote a column about it. And w- why do you think that happens? Well, I think because it's easier. Mm. It's easier to talk about, um, well, let's see uh... How come Romney hasn't re- released more of his income tax refunds? Well, mm-hmm. you know that doesn't affect my life. I don't care. I know he's rich. I know yeah. he's really rich. Uh, you know why do we do that? Well, it's because the reporter in the field who's covering that candidate has heard that candidate's same speech over and over, and every stop they give the same speech. I've been mm-hmm. there, done that. I used to cover the White House. I've mm-hmm. covered presidential politics, and. So there's nothing left to say. They've already reported on the speech, so they glom on to these little meaningless things because their editors tell them to. Their editors put them in this situation Mm -hmm. where just follow the candidate around instead of, why don't you get off the campaign trail and go and find the lobbyists who made this man vote the way he did in the past Mm -hmm. or go dig into his... Um, business dealings before he became a politician. Let's find out more about the true character of these people. But reporters aren't given that luxury because all the newsrooms have been cut to the bone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a shame. And they have to fill airtime. Yes, and, and you know, I hear a lot of my colleagues, and, and I've worked everywhere. I've worked at NBC and CBS and I haven't ever worked at ABC, but I have worked at the TV show Hard Copy and Inside Edition, and you know, all of these places. And I hear everyone complain, well, you know, the media, our reputation is down and, you know, we're we're considered about as popular as congressmen or used car salesmen. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Mm because we put ourselves there. Mm -hmm. We abrogated our responsibility in, in a lot of respects and it's come back to bite us. How did you get started, Diane? Oh. How did you start down this trail? Well, I am the daughter of a butcher. My father used to be a uh, college professor, and he said, this is for the birds, I'm going to go start my own business. And I uh, grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm-hmm. and I didn't really want to work at the butcher shop. <laughs> so my best friend's father owned a local TV station, a CBS station in Albuquerque. I began to be the receptionist there in high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it sounds silly now, but one night, the news director came running out. It was a summer night. I was answering the phones and he was panicked. All of the writers in the newsroom had gone out for dinner and had a car accident. And they were in the hospital. I mean, it was bad. And he said to me, can you write? Can you type? And I said, oh yes, oh, I've won some awards in school. And yeah, sure, I can do that. So I got to write some news <laughs> that the anchor man actually read on the air that night. And I, I got hooked. Right like how then old there, were there? I was hooked in the news, on news. I was probably 16. That's wonderful. That's Still a wonderful story. Yeah. And then, then what happened after that? Well, I stayed there. That was KGGM television. It's called something else now. But um I've always had this sort of husky, raspy voice even as a kid, and a local radio station said to me, hey, do you want to come and work here? And I said, you bet. So I became a radio correspondent, and as fate would have it, my beat became cops, county and city cops. And I made a lot of um, good source friends, and I got a lot of good stories, and I won the American Bar Association Silver Gavel Award, Oh gosh, I'm gonna date myself now back in the late seventies for we exposing, exposing the misdeeds of uh the local sheriff, the Bernalillo County Sheriff, and three of his top aides. So with that in hand, I traipsed around the country and dropped off resumes and National Public Radio hired me and I became their newscaster on all things considered. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that show. Oh gosh. You can't be that old. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, I definitely am. But I do remember that show. Great show, Diane. I, you know, you do what you have to do, or you do what fate takes you to. And so there I was in Washington, D.C., working for NPR, being the newscaster. But I really wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be out among people. I didn't want to sit behind a desk. So I got the opportunity to cover Capitol Hill. And then the White House and then the State Department and the Commerce Department. And so I really got um a good feeling of how our government works and doesn't work. And I I that that's carried me through a lot of my career, although I don't cover politics anymore, and I don't want to cover politics anymore. Right. It's become a, a blood sport I'm just not interested in. Do you get nervous before an interview? Um no. The last time I can tell you that I was really, I mean, the stomach, butterfly stomach, the shaky hands, the the wobbly knees, was when I went in to interview Richard Allen Davis. Really? He was the killer of poly class. Mm-hmm. He had admit, admitted it, and he was, this was in California many years ago, and there was an, an executive, um, uh, the governor had put out an order that. State prisoners were not to be interviewed. It was an executive order. Probably if we had challenged it, it would have been uh, unconstitutional, but it was in effect. Richard Allen Davis was being transferred from county to state custody, Mm -hmm. and I got him for half an hour. They put him in a room with me. We threw a couple cameras in there, a couple lights, and we started to talk. And it was such a tight little room, Francie. My knees were probably four inches away from him. And were you a- afraid of him? I was. I and was. They brought, brought him in in chains on his feet and hands, and then they chained him to a lock on the floor. Mm-hmm. That's how dangerous a man he was. And two mm-hmm. guards stood behind him as I spoke to him in this small little room. It was like there was no air in the room left. Mm-hmm. But um, that made me nervous. That one really made me nervous. Um The Green Beret killer, whose name escapes me right now, uh, McDonald, Jeffrey McDonald. Jeffrey McDonald, yes. Yeah, I interviewed him face to face in prison too, and uh, he scared me later. I confronted him with some uh, letters he had been writing to a woman. He didn't know I had them, but he agreed to see me to tell me his tale of woe. And, uh, after he was done, I put these letters down on the on the cell block table in front of him and I said, tell me about these letters. I mean, yeah. you're asking this woman to wire herself and go talk to witnesses on your behalf and you're talking about having had sex with her when she comes to visit you in prison because she's posing as a lawyer and he immediately began to sweat and shake and get red and the guards who were in the room stepped forward and he tore off of the microphone and that was it. Yeah. It was over. I thought nothing of it. Okay, well that was a good T V moment. But I um later heard from a research friend that he had on the outside, you better watch it. If he ever gets out, you are on his list. Oh wow. So I I, I check periodically and he is still in prison and, and I don't know, think he's Diane, ever gonna get out. That's the backlash that you have often and investigators do too. Private investigators. Well sure, sure. You, you know, when you dig in to private areas to find wow. truth, that's, yeah. the, that's what you get. And I can imagine that private detectives, and I work with a lot of different private detectives, they go to great lengths to protect their privacy. Their phones, their addresses, their uh, children, where they go to school. Right. You yeah. know, you don't put your name on any magazine subscriptions, you don't put your name on the phone bill or the mortgage. You know, there's a lot of well, look who I'm telling. You know these things, yeah, for sure. It's, you got to be careful. Okay, Diane, we need to take a quick break. Award-winning journalist Diane Diamond will be back in just a moment.
0: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
1: She's often the first to break a story and the first to report. She's my guest today. And, Diane, we were just talking about being nervous of interviews. How about celebrities? Celebrities never bother you? No, not really. Um, because when I go into a celebrity story, it's from a crime angle. Uh, for example, I found myself, I, I do some work for Entertainment Tonight. Mm-hmm. And the, the boss at E.T. used to be my boss at Hard Copy. So she'll call me every once in a while and say, Hey, get to Aspen, Colorado. Charlie Sheen is going to be there because he beat up his wife. <laughs> okay. So I get a free ride to, to Aspen, Colorado, and I realize how short <laughs> Charlie Sheen is. Oh, my Boy. goodness. So, uh, you know, when I go into a, a place like that or in, in, into a story like that, they're on my turf. Charlie Sheen is in a courtroom. So he walks in and I say, good afternoon, Mr. Sheen. And he says, well, well hi, <laughs> you know, and they talk to you because they're off guard. They're not surrounded by publicists in a studio uh, with their familiar lighting package. And so uh, I-, I tend to be able to go in and get more than the average person. Um, Kate Gosselin, when she went in to get uh, a divorce from her husband, that Kate Plus mm-hmm. 8 show, mm-hmm. um, I covered that over in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, they, they look at me and they go, oh, that's that crime reporter. She's not a celebrity reporter. I'll talk to her. Interesting. In Kate's case, she didn't talk to anybody. But I was the one who got the questions in walking down the hall with her. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, they, they step onto my turf. And so I'm not the one that's nervous. They are. And how much prep work do you have to do for an interview? Well, my husband would tell you I over-prep. <laughs> it's that Catholic school education, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do quite a bit. I do quite a bit because I don't want to just know the facts of the particular case right now. Like any good PI, you dig into who is this person? Where did they come from? Did they grow up in New York City in the Bronx? Or are you talking to somebody who grew up in Corn Pump? Nebraska, Mm -hmm. who really at their base, at their soul, small town packaging. So, try to find out as much as I can about somebody's background and then relate to them on that level because you get much more honesty, I think, that way. Hmm. Interesting. And you're ready for questions as they, as you can fit them in. Yeah, as well. You know, uh, as you can tell, I like to talk and I, I um, go into an interview as I would a conversation. I want the person to feel like they have a cup of coffee in front of them, or a drink, or lunch, right. and just talk to me. And it's I've been I've been successful in in doing that and getting information out of people that they might not otherwise give to somebody who goes in, you know, full bore. What's happening? How come you're here? Did you do it? Are you guilty? Mm-hmm. I, I don't do that. I go in and talk to them about them like and their background person. and their family first. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I'm giving away trade secrets now, <laughs> Francie. And, and so that <laughs> makes you different, a different style of interviewer than many of the investigative reporters. Uh, I think so, although, you know, every reporter should be an investigative reporter. But again, the bosses don't give you time they say, when I worked in local television in New York City, for example, WCBS, the flagship, you'd go in in the morning and they'd hand you a uh, an article out of the newspaper and they'd say, here's your story for the day. It's 8 a.m. You're on live at noon. So you'd get to the location, you'd get a few facts, and boom, you're on the air. Mm -hmm. So there was no time to really investigate and figure out why that kid set that fire that made 15 families have to leave their homes. You know, who was that kid? Well, I don't know. I didn't have time to check. Yeah, And that's why I don't do that kind of journalism anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That would be frustrating. Yeah. And and, you know, for a while, it was educational, taught me the TV biz, but I'm more interested in journalism and telling stories than being on television. Well, and I see investigators doing exactly the same thing that you're talking about. They'll go in, say, working for an attorney or working on a case and going in with a list of questions and thinking they have to go down the one, two, three answering those questions instead of developing the story and the interview and then checking to see if their questions are answered. And, and you know what else when you do it my way? You, you get to know the person, you watch their body language. Instead of looking down at your list of questions, you watch them and how they react and the rhythm of their conversation. And when they start to lie and their voice goes up like this, Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. they're feeding you a line of crap. So I think it's much more uh, important for truth-seeking, which we're all all about, to look at the person in the eye when you speak to them. And really take the measure of the person. And, you know, how would you, um, what advice would you give to a budding either investigative reporter or a inbe- uh, private investigator about conducting an interview? Because you do have to keep juggle several balls in the air at the same time when you're doing that. So yeah. what advice would you give them? Well, um, know your subject. Know as much about your subject as you can before you interview them. Uh, yeah, a Google search is good. Do the Google search. Spend yeah. some time on the Internet. But make discreet phone calls if you can. If you're going to um, interview a college student, go and talk to their high school teachers if you can. If you're going to interview a con man, somebody you suspect is a con man, go try to talk to some of their past fix. Mm-hmm. You know, go find out what is their MO. How do they do this? Uh, I had a woman uh one time... Kansas City, Missouri. I won't give you her name because it doesn't matter now all these years later, but she had been taken in by this guy who said he was a member of the CIA and he was a Navy SEAL and he was a this and a that. It bled her dry of all of her savings. Mm-hmm. I think she married him, actually, and then he disappeared. And I finally found this guy living with another man, by the way, uh, conning more people. Mm-hmm. Well, I had already known his M.O., before I confronted him. And when I confronted him, it was like, hey, hi, listen, you know, I'm hearing this story about you. Give me your side Mm -hmm. and shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest mistake I think reporters make, maybe P.I.s too. You go into a subject and you try to tell them everything you know. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Keep it in your mind as an ace in the hole, so to speak. Boy, that was a mixed metaphor. But, uh, you know, keep keep your aces up your sleeve about what you know about this person and just let them talk until that noose gets around their neck and you can pull it. Well, and what you just said is, is key just by itself. Once you ask a question, let them answer the question and wait for the answer. And you know what? When they're done answering it, keep just looking at them. Mm -hmm. And then they'll add more and more and then some more. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think um, when I watch young reporters, um, for example, I just covered the Jerry Sandusky trial. Yes. I just covered the John Edwards trial. And I watch young reporters sitting next to me in court, and I know how a court works. They don't but they get a couple of questions at the bar that they can ask the attorney, and they're so intent on in getting out their couple of questions, they haven't listened to the answer mm-hmm. to the first one. And so that that would be my, my biggest piece of advice to anybody conducting an interview, a PI, a report. Listen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ask only pertinent questions and listen. Yeah. Make a personal connection first if you can. But, and do you find, uh, Diane, okay. that if you go uh, back and talk to that person a second time, you get a lot more information than you did the first time? Well, it depends on how I left it the first time. (laughs) For example, this fella I'm talking about the con man. What was his name? Richard Strait, I believe it was. Um, I went to him and I said, now, tell me about this. You know, she says that you took her whole family hostage. And, you know, tell me your side of the story. So he told me this whole long story, and most of these psychopaths and sociopaths, they'll, they're like OJ Simpson. They'll just talk and talk and talk and talk. And then you have to pick your spot where you say, Hey, wait a minute. You told me it was ABC. Now you're saying it's XYZ. Mm-hmm. W- w- wait a minute. So if you pull too many of those gotchas yeah. and they get upset, yeah. then you can't go back. Yeah. But. Yeah, it depends on, on your goal. Are you writing a long magazine piece where you need to go back and talk to them four or five times? Or is this a one-time shot on a television camera where you're just looking for that, that, uh, expression they give you when you expose who they really are? Uh, Yeah. Right. Interesting. And, well, you mentioned this uh, Jerry Sandusky trial. How Mm -hmm. was that to cover? Must have been amazing. Oh, I have to tell you, it was just I think I told you this when we first met. It was brutal. It was just brutal. And and I know the topic of pedophilia. Uh, as you mentioned, I've done the, the Michael Jackson story I covered right. for 15 years. I wrote a book about it. I know how pedophiles act. Hey, Diane, hang on to that, will you? I want sure. to get into a little more. PIC class will so be right back with Diane Diamond. <laughs>
0: NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified.
1: IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. A
1: reporter's reporter for a consistently high quality investigative storytelling, Diane Diamond, is talking about covering the Jerry Sandusky trial. But Diane, it must have been just uh, incredible. Yeah, it really was, Fredzie, because in in many of these cases where people are alleged to have been pedophiles, one person comes forward, two complainants maybe. In this instance, there were 10 victims. Um, Two of them, we didn't even know their identities. They had been spotted by adults that came in and talked about what they'd seen Jerry Sandusky do. Mm -hmm. But the other eight were young men. One of them reminded me of my cousin's boy so much that... There they were, um, as young as 18, as old as 28, and they were sobbing on the stand, most Mm -hmm. of them. One of Mm -hmm. them was real tough. He held it all in, and he had a chip on his shoulder, and he was going to tell what Jerry Sandusky had done to him. But most of them, it came to a point where they just broke down and sobbed, gasping for breath, to get out their story. Uh, oftentimes their parents were sitting in the front row of the, um, audience section of the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And, um, as a mother, <laughs> it just broke my heart. Mm-hmm. I was covering for Newsweek and the Daily Beast and I would, uh, I would leave the courtroom to rush to my hotel room to file my piece. And I would just find, you know, I'm a tough old bird, <laughs> but I would find myself just gotcha. cr- crying in the car. Yeah. Yeah. It was just pathetic and realize because of the statute of limitations, this is all that they brought. They only brought, only brought 10 victims forward. Court papers showed that they had victims 11 through 19 standing in the wings mm-hmm. in case they were needed. And then during the trial, his own adopted son, Matt, comes forward and says, he's number 20. I read that. that
0: so, was amazing. you know,
1: it was just, um, I think one of the reasons, Francie, it was so, uh, brutal to cover personally was because in Pennsylvania, boy, they move it along. Mm-hmm. There are no motions, there's no waiting, there's no days off, there's, and all of this happened within two weeks.
0: Oh, that's incredible.
1: To, yeah. Uh, I, I wish other courts would take this, uh, into account. It was let <laughs> go. Unlike California, where I'm from. <laughs> exactly. Or New York, or yeah. New Mexico, where yeah. I grew up. So. Yeah, it was um, it was interesting, and of course, sentencing is coming up. Uh, Sandusky faces more than four hundred years in prison, so it'll be interesting to see what he gets. Well, how does? I mean, this must have a huge impact on you psychologically. How does this affect you when you're covering this kind of uh, these kind of stories all the time? Well, I tell you, I have to um, sort of do an internal audit. For example, since I covered Sandusky, I've gotten so many tips coming into my website and uh, just my regular email about, hey, you think Sandusky was bad? You should hear this and this and this one and this one. And there's one down in Florida where a psychiatrist, you know, was doing all his patients. And I I have to sort of politely say to people, I'm working on something else right now because I used to take it all on, and then I realized This is killing me. (laughs) It -hmm. just, it does finally get to you at at some point. And, you know, I don't want to be known as the pedophile correspondent. I have a whole body of work, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, within the crime and justice community. So you have that on your bio. (laughs) uh, Yeah, the the pedophile reporter. (laughs) The anti-pedophile reporter. But oh. it, it gets obsessive. I, I'm, I, I do admit I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with people who would look at a small child and say, I can do something sexual to that yeah. child. Yeah. What, yeah. what kind of sickness is that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the sad part is it, usually it's because they, too, have been victimized as a child. That's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. So what's, what's been your favorite story? You have a favorite?: You know, it's funny. I'm just writing a speech uh, for an event I have to go to in Albuquerque, as a matter of fact, in October, and um, it's to talk to the Freedom of Government committee there. The governor's going to be there, Susanna Martinez and all of this, and anyway, about the uh, importance of public disclosure and, and, and open government. And I, I'm starting that speech with my favorite story that I've ever covered, and it might surprise you. Um, I was working for the TV show Hard Copy many years ago, and I'm a voracious reader. I read everything. And a little, tiny, little uh, newspaper article about three women in Southern California who were going to be honored at the Angels baseball game because they had adopted a homeless woman they found. Hmm. And this woman didn't even know her name. And I thought, what? Wow. So I contacted the people. Long story short, I found out through public documents who this woman was. They found her in front of a Seven Eleven, 11 dazed, confused, thick speech. She talk like this. She couldn't really talk. She'd had some sort of a stroke, probably about 40 years old, 40-something. I discovered that a year earlier, She had been working for the Los Angeles Times putting in their software program. She was an Army veteran named Catherine Bartholomew who had bad diabetes. She'd lost her job and lost her medical coverage and couldn't afford insulin anymore. And how was all that information developed? Well, it is a very long story, and the Veterans Administration in California, Rio Rancho, California, helped me a lot, Um, but it was through public documents. I found out little snippets of information. I found out who her son was, and I went to him, a drug addict. It was a terrible thing. He was part of the reason she lost her apartment because he and his motorcycle buddies moved in. But through him, I got her name, which took me about two weeks to convince this little brat to give me his mother's name. Mm -hmm. Um, And through that, then somehow he told me or a neighbor told me that she had been in the service. So uh, I just pieced it together methodically. It took me about a month. (laughs) What was the clue that you started with a person that didn't know who she was? What was the first thing you found that you were able to identify her? Uh, the son. The son. And how yeah, did you and, find him? And the son I found because I went down to these three women had adopted Catherine. Mm-hmm. And they were all single women working in a secretarial pool. And so they, she sort of, Catherine stayed with one for a week and then another for a week and mm-hmm. another for a week. And the son kept showing up looking for money. So they knew his name. They knew where he hung out underneath the bridge under an overpass on the freeway, 405. And I just uh, I found the sun.
0: That was him. the
1: break. <laughs> There's always one break. You guys, you yeah. you PIs know that. Yeah. One break takes you to another, to another, to another, and then public documents began to open up. And um, I was shocked to learn that this woman who could hardly put a sentence together, had devised the software program for the LA Times just you know sixteen months earlier, and what had she had had a stroke? That was why she was where she was at, or was yeah, there more to go- it? She had had a uh, in- she had gone into insulin shock. I got her to some doctors, um, and ultimately, here's why it's my favorite story. Um, We tracked it back. Catherine had had a husband at one time who was in Colorado who told me where her family was in Nebraska. And we raised some money. The girls raised money, got her a plane ticket, and took her and her dog, who was always with her on the street, Mm. Sadie, beautiful uh, golden retriever, uh, put him on a plane back to Nebraska, and she was reunited with her family. And that's where she is today. What a great story. And these three women they're amazing they, they, the three women yeah and it, as as these things go nothing is ever tidy at, at the end they were bickering among themselves who had helped her more and mm. who should get if she ever wrote a book who should get the money and if there was a movie going to be made who should get the it, and it, it it turned kind of ugly and at that point wow. I lost touch with those three women but that, I still am in touch with Catherine that, that, thank you thank you for sharing that because that <laughs> is a <laughs> wonderful story and she's and she 's doing well uh, she is she has recovered her speech um, she's still um, she 's a, a kind of a tall, large woman, and she walks a little uh, gimpy, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, on one side like she, because she 's had a stroke of some sort, um, but she 's happy she doesn 't watch television, but she does have some sort of rudimentary internet that we communicate with, and she does a lot of arts and crafts. So she sent me a doll, which I have in one of my bedrooms here, um, a beautiful doll in a long dress with a bonnet. It's a rag doll she made, mm. but it has no face. Wow. And I asked her about that, and she said, I made it like that because I know what it's like to have no face. Wow. Yeah, and and she would say these profound things. Again, I don't want to hang on one subject too long, but she would say these profound things like, I say, Catherine, what do you think is going on with you? Are you okay? Are you going to be okay? And she said, yes, but you cannot put a Band-Aid on your brain. Oh, that is pretty profound. (laughs) You know, these things that would just Uh, melt your heart, you know. But anyway, the long and short of it is she's doing really well. (laughs) That's just an, an outstanding story. Thank you. Yeah, just an outstanding story. And... Would you say Richard Allen Davis is the worst one you ever covered, or is there something worse than that experience? Mm. Well, I think the the worst, and it depends on what you mean by worst, but the worst one I think I ever covered was Michael Jackson because he was so famous and he was so loved and he mm. was so um, idolized by so many. I'm, I still get death threats every week. I, I get really? death threats from fans in Norway and Ireland and England and New York and wherever they happen to be, mostly young people who um, are troubled. Uh, but, but that one is the one I can't shake when he was going to go out on his concert tour when he died uh when there was the memorial when his uh, family recently kidnapped his mother yeah, I know. you know whenever there's a development my phone starts ringing off the hook and frankly i tried to just stay out of it now mm-hmm. I, I i again i don't want to be known as the <laughs> the, the michael jackson correspondent or the pedophile right. correspondent right but i, I think I think, I hope, that that story that I spent so many years covering opens some eyes to the fact that a, a, a sexual abuser can be anybody. It could be a famous person. It could be a priest. It could be a next-door neighbor. It could be all sorts of people. And don't just simply say, oh, it can't be, because it can be. Do you still believe Michael Jackson was involved? Oh, uh, yes, yes. Absolutely, no and, question. Uh, in my book, it's called "Be Careful Who You Love." Mm-hmm. Um, that's a uh, uh, that's a lyric from Billie Jean. Um, anyway, uh, I, I don't make any pronouncements in the book, which I wrote in two thousand five six after the criminal trial, and he was found not guilty. Let's remember, but uh, I, I lay out the case and let the reader decide. Uh, years later now, and now that he's dead, i'll tell you yes, I think he was one of the most prolific in your face pedophiles we've ever seen because even after he was um he, he was uh, uh accused first and paid off the first young boy Jordan Chandler and his family at least fifteen million dollars. It cost him much more than that, but um even after that, he would appear in places surrounded by children, uh, stepping out on balconies, holding up child magazine. He would, he thumbed his nose at the world and said, oh yeah, really? Guess what? I can do anything I want. And he did until the day he died. Okay. Stay tuned for more about Inside an Investigative Journalist's Mind with Diane Diamond. about the White House skate crashes. She was just talking about the Michael Jackson book, Be Careful Who You Love. But I wanted to tell you about her latest book. Would you talk about that, Diane? Sure. It's called uh, Cirque de Salahi. If you remember, it was Tarkin Mikhail Salahi who, quote, snuck into the White House. I wrote the book not because of them, but because the way the media Hyped that story. Mm-hmm. It just pisses me off. Excuse me, can I say that? You can say um, that. I've covered the White House. You can't crash the White House, okay? The moment I heard that story, I thought to myself, well, that's ridiculous. But I dissect the... Um, it's an anatomy of the story, and it happened over a Thanksgiving break, and newsrooms were basically empty, and it was the only story in town, and my gosh, it sounded so important White House gate crashers. Well, I went down and I spent time practically living with the Salahis, who, by the way, have since divorced. Um, Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, Anyway, uh, and and, and I realized these were two social climbing uh, people, not bad people. She especially is just a doll um, suffering from multiple sclerosis, but she just, goes out and did whatever her husband told her to do and they went to parties and they were the jet set. They had no ill intention at all and I believe as I write in the book they were on a secondary list. The guest list went out and over the next six weeks people dropped out. They couldn't come. This was Barack Obama's very first state dinner and he didn't Mm -hmm. want any uh, you know empty tables or any empty seats. So they pulled out a secondary list of people they owed favors to. And the Salahis had given a lot of wine from their winery to Democratic events. And so they got on the list. They got on the secondary list. And we actually later saw video of them being swept right in by the Secret Service. Oh, yeah, well, your name isn't on this list, but go down there. It must be on the other list. Come on in. Interesting. So what part of, the, of, what part of that it sounds like gate crashing? Yeah. None yeah. of it. Yeah. And it started with two uh, Washington Post gossip columnists and took off. Amazing. Yeah. It's really a call to readers and viewers to mm-hmm. think about what they're hearing. Put your critical thinking cap on when you digest media. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, read about it, hear it on the radio, or see it on TV. Ask yourself, does that sound Right. And in this instance, it just didn't sound right, but everybody still calls them the White House gate crashers. But you know, Diane, when it comes across the news, people believe it, no matter how outrageous it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Well, you know, it's, it's like, uh, Michael Jackson. People, many people, oh, he's innocent. He absolutely, we want to believe the best. And the but worst. we also want to be the worst, <laughs> yeah, you know? Exactly. And so it's like, look at those people. She's beautiful, she's blonde, and he's handsome and he's got a tuxedo on. They must be bad people. <laughs> so, yeah. check check your critical thinking caps, folks. Yeah. It's it's, you know, it's it's hard. It uh, I always tell people when I'm training them to do investigations and training them to do interviews, to watch TV and turn watch a talk show like uh or any talk show or 48 hours or 2020 20, where people are being interviewed and turn the sound off. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and just watch their body language, watch their expression and see what you think of their integrity. You know, one of the best people to have done that with and sadly he's gone now was Mike Wallace. I mm. worked with his stepson, Ames Yates, and I, I got to know Mike Wallace. My husband works at CBS. Uh, he's an anchorman on the radio there. So I, I knew Mike Wallace, and he was so good and so glib. He would sit down and do an interview, and people would spill their guts because mm. he gave them time to talk. Yeah. He didn't interrupt. Oh, yeah, well, guess what I know? He just yeah. let them talk and hang themselves. It was just brilliant. He was brilliant. So was Ted Koppel. Well, and I I think you'd agree with this, Diane, because I've seen you interview, that a lot of it is when you treat people with respect, they return it in kind. Right. Right. And I think a lot of reporters, maybe PIs too, you know, you think, well, I'm somebody important and I'm going to go in and I'm going to strut around and I'm going to make them answer my questions. That's that's not going to get you very far. In the long run, you'll get a few answers. But it may not get you to the truth. Because you've got to look at people eye to eye, straight on. Hey, I'm interested. Tell me your side of this story. And they open up like an unwrapped sandwich. (laughs) That's a good good (laughs) analogy. I like that. (laughs) So so how do you decompress? I mean, because this has to be huge pressure. Yeah, it is. It is and you know the older I get the more I feel it. I didn't used to feel it at all. Uh I love to garden. Um I grow roses, I grow tomatoes and lots of herbs and stuff and I love to cook with what I grow. Uh I have a couple of fat cats that I love. I have a very understanding husband who's in the same business and I have um a daughter and now some grandchildren who I just sometimes say I'm shutting off the phone. I'm not looking at the internet. <laughs> I'm going to go play with my grandkids. <laughs> yeah. Do they call you grandma? No, they call me Dee Dee because uh-huh. they had a bunch of other grandmas and great grandmas around. And so everybody got grandma and nana and, you know, right. so there was nothing left. So they just yeah. call me Dee Dee. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Which is called, fine. You know. I tried
1: to get them to call me pretty lady <laughs> or, or auntie, but no, they wouldn't fight. Well, you know, it's important to have your name selected when you become a grandmother because that name is going to stick with you for the rest of your life and the rest of their life. And now do you have one? I do. And what is that? I'm a nana. A nana? Yeah. yeah. My uh, cousin is Yaya. Uh-huh. And my other friend, who I'm going to go see in California in a couple of weeks, Nancy, uh, just had her first grandchild, and so she's decided she should be Grancy. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh. You're right. It is important. Yeah. It's imp- yeah. important stuff. After all the the um, tough stuff we deal with, you know, come on, murders, decapitations, yeah. little babies being molested, killed, fire victims, it, it's, it wears on you, and you have to have something else. You have to yeah. have several something else, as I've discovered. The relationships, <laughs> the pets. The pests are important. Yeah, And next-door neighbors, you can just say, hey, come on over, let's have a glass of wine on the deck and look at the Hudson River. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, Diane, this has been delightful. I've totally enjoyed talking to you. You have so much experience that we could all draw on. Uh, Do you have any other words of wisdom you'd like to give either private investigators or investigative reporters? Well, I think the important thing, the most important thing we need to do is put aside our biases and our prejudices and go into situations with a completely open mind. If you think you know who the bad guy is, you might be wrong. And so if your goal is like my goal, which is truth, you have to consider everything. You can't already make up your mind before you start to dig in. No assumptions. Yeah, that's got to be harder for PIs I would think because you yeah. work for one side or the other. Yeah. Um and and I would imagine many of you at one point have to look at your employer, have had the occasion to look at your employer and say, "You know what? I think you're on the wrong side." Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. But that's a dilemma I don't have because I get paid either way. Yeah. The truth right. does not affect my bottom line. Thank you so much, Diane. Um, let me just uh, give a brief rundown here. A huge thank you to Boston University for the use of their facilities today. BU has a great educational program set up for those who are interested in becoming private investigators. And if you're interested, contact private investigator Tom Shamshak, S-H-A-M-S-H-A-K, at www.shamshakpi, dot com. And again, thank you to my wonderful producer, Sondra Rogers at PIs Declassified and Voice America. If you're interested in advertising, please contact her for 80-553-5756. So again, tune in next week if we declassified more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. Thanks, Diane.
0: You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler.